In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore my fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miss Stacy. <clears throat> well, good morning. If we haven't had an opportunity to meet yet, my name is James Walden, and I'm one of the uh, elders here at Riverside. And it's, uh, it's my great privilege to walk us through this good news, which comes rather abruptly, doesn't it? Uh, just to note the context, look at the previous verse. We restarted in verse 11, but if you have your Bibles open, just look at verse 10, just for instance. It says, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. All who say disaster will not overtake us or meet us. And then there's like this grinding of the gears, and then I will raise up the, the fallen booth of David and I will bless your socks off. In the middle of all these, what, what we would call technically covenant curses, all these curses of the covenant that are being pronounced against Israel for their infidelity, for their breaking the covenant over and over and over again, um, unrepentantly, uh, 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 recalcitrantly. Uh, they're stubborn in their sin, and so these curses are coming. But in the middle of curse, blessing out of nowhere isn't that the way that grace works i love how paul puts it in romans it says where sin increased grace just appears and increases all the more in the middle of the dark light shines and so it's this beautiful transition i mean it's it's this jump to the fact that Blessing always is pro-offered to God's people. It always attends judgment. Um, you know, one of the weak, there's a lot of weaknesses to preaching, the preacher being foremost. One of the weaknesses of preaching is that you rarely can preach a whole book in one sermon. And what happens is you sort of just get bits and pieces of the book, and you don't get the whole picture just from one sitting. But really, Amos's book should be, read, should be read in its entirety. And, and we should understand all that we've been reading from the, the, the coming judgments against the nations, including Edom and Israel and Judah, to the promised blessings that will include not just Israel and Judah, but even Edom. That blessings are there. That blessings are promised. It reminds us of Deuteronomy where Moses lays out all these curses that Amos is now pronouncing and all the blessings that would attend obedience. And then he prophesies and says, and in fact, all these curses will fall on you because you're stubborn. But in the latter days, 
all the blessings will come. This is important for us to understand. It's important for us to read Amos in the context of verses 11 through through, uh, 15. Because otherwise, we'll have a really hard time heeding God's Word. It's hard to obey God when you feel cursed. In fact, Psalm 130 says it beautifully. With you, O God, there is forgiveness of sins so that you might be feared. If with God there wasn't forgiveness of sins, God wouldn't be feared. He would be despised. How do we obey a God with whom we have no favor, no hope? And the reality is this. So often, you and I feel like Israel here. We feel as if we're cursed. I mean, doesn't 2020 feel cursed? If you're a Gamecock fan, you feel cursed. But like this election, I, I, guys, I dreamt about Donald Trump. That's never happened in my life. That's how much stress I'm having over this election. And it feels cursed. Race relations in America feel cursed. Is there any hope of coming out of this? Will there be any light in this darkness? Personally, as a, as a, as a husband... I often feel cursed. My sins, not just like mistakes I made in the past, but like the pattern of sin of my selfishness and the ways I can be abrupt and self-absorbed, I just, I feel cursed. How do I break this pattern? Or as a parent, as a father, how do I be a better dad? I feel cursed in my failings time and time again. I feel cursed as a pastor often. I feel like everything I touch sometimes feels like it dies. I feel cursed sometimes in my friendships. As friendships grow cold over time. Sometimes I feel cursed in my relationship to Jesus as a disciple. Will there be any hope for me? Am I ever going to really grow up? Am I going to really bear the fruit that God has called me to bear? We feel cursed. When you feel cursed, you feel scared, you feel shattered, like you've got nothing, and stingy. But here's the good news that was for Amos' people, for Israel, and it's the good news that's for us. We are not cursed in Christ Jesus. Northern Israel did receive the curses of the covenant, but blessing was promised them. Here's Here's what's the even better news for us. The curses of the covenant, the curses that we feel often against us of our own sin, and the world's curses, all those curses pale in comparison to the curse of God. And yet, the truth is, we are not cursed in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from all of the divine curses of the covenant by becoming accursed for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ was cursed, though He deserved nothing but blessing. He was cursed in our place so that the curse would be done away. The curse has spoken its worst word. It has nothing left to say against us. No curse hangs over the people of God. 
And in its place, what is Paul going to say? Christ was cursed so that the blessings of Abraham, the blessings of Isaac and Jacob, the same blessings Moses offered to the people of Israel, so that those blessings might now come to the Gentiles, us. So oftentimes we feel cursed, brothers and sisters, but I want to remind us that this morning you are blessed and eternally so. You stand not under the curse of God, but under the, His everlasting blessings. At the cross, that curse was buried. And what came out of that grave was blessing forevermore. And all the saints said, Amen. I'm done. <laughs> not really. Landon already prayed for us, and so in that prayer, let's continue to dig into this Word as we look and we enjoy the blessings God has promised His people. Jumping right into verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen. Maybe we'll get to in that day in a moment. I mean, all this day is so far has been a day of judgment, a day of darkness, not light, and now all of a sudden, light. And in particular, he mentions the booth of David that's fallen. Where does this come from? There's been no mention of David except as a side comment about how in their drunken revelry, they're like David in all their musical creativity. But this was a promise that would have been familiar to the saints of Israel. They would have known that God made a promise to David. And they lived in a time where David's empire had been split in two. Where his throne had been, had been threatened by this split loyalty between northern Israel and Judah in the south. Maybe that's why Amos refers not to the house of David, but the booth of David. The tent, feeble, easily torn down weak. But all the prophets predicted that God would restore Israel by raising up David. Listen to what he, Ezekiel says, I will take the people of Israel that I have scattered across the land, and I'm going to bring them into one nation. They will have one king who is king over them all. And then the verses on the screen, no longer will they be a divided kingdom. We read this my servant David will be their king. Now, David's long dead when Ezekiel writes this. Certainly long dead before this is ever fulfilled. And they will have one shepherd. They will walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They will dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince I don't know if you remember Hosea when we went through the book of Hosea, but Hosea says something very similar. So by the way, we're going to hit a couple of verses, so I hope you had your coffee this morning. Uh, but in Hosea 3, we read this, Afterward, after you are without king, you're without your religious paraphernalia in the exile, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, it was written long after David was in the ground. But they expected on the promise given to David a descendant who would restore the kingdom. 
And that's the language we see here. I mean, verse 11 is very complex. If you look at it, and you look at the pronouns here, the booth of David. Booth is feminine in Hebrew. David, of course, is a masculine proper noun. The booth of David that has fallen, and I will repair their breaches, feminine plural. Their breaches, meaning not just David, but they, probably northern Israel and Judah, both of them. Both of these sisters will be restored. And I will raise up his ruins, his referencing David. And I will rebuild her, the booth of David, the dynasty of David, as in the days of old. In other words, this is a full-orbed restoration. And that's obvious when you look at verses 13, 14, and 15. Like jump down, for instance, to verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. This is... This is a refrain throughout Moses and the prophets. Moses predicted it in Deuteronomy 30 that in the latter days I will restore you. I will restore your fortunes. And wherever I've scattered you across the four corners I will regather. And your prosperity will be greater than your father's. They shall rebuild, using the same word as rebuild in verse 11. The ruined cities that inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make their gardens and, and, and they will eat their fruit. Now remember, the curses of the covenant are a tragic reversal of these blessings. When, God, when Moses brought the people into the land, he says, I'm going to plant you in the land. And then Amos, echoing the curses of Moses, says, but no more, I'm going to tear you out of the land. And I'm going to bring you into vineyards you didn't plant. And you're going to enjoy wine that you did not grow. And now Amos, articulating this tragic reversal, says, now you'll work in these vineyards and you won't enjoy a single grape. Not one cup of wine will you enjoy from these vineyards. It is the tragic reversal that is curse. That just as God set His eyes on you when He heard your wailings in slavery in Egypt and He turned your wailings into songs, so He will turn now your singing into wailing. And He will set His eye on you not to do you good, but as we saw last week, to destroy you. God is hell-bent on judgment. But now we're seeing this grand reversal of fortunes. Now, He is heaven-bent on your restoration. Behold, verse 13, I love this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. There will be so much fruit, you can't keep up with it. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine. And the hills will flow with it. you guys think it's any coincidence that the first public miracle Jesus did was turning water into wine at a wedding by his divine power? It's a good question. He turned water into wine. It's his first public miracle. I am the wine bringer. I am the one who will cause the, 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 the mountains to flow. And I love this verse. This, she who was cursed, she who was barren, will now be the superlatively blessed one. Isaiah 54, one of the famous passages of the early church. Paul quotes from this passage. Sing, O barren one who did not bear any kids. 
Break into singing and cry aloud. You have never known labor pain. For the children of the desolate one, that is the people of God that have been stripped of all their blessings and God's judgment, will be more than the children of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. You don't have room for all the blessing that's coming. Strengthen your stakes. You're going to need it. Oh, I love how Ezekiel puts it. I will turn the desolate land into the Garden of Eden. A flourishing paradise. And the nations that remain, that, that the remnant nations, they'll see it. And it will be so obvious that God did this restoration. He says, the nations will know that I am the Lord. And speaking of the nations, he mentions them explicitly in verse 12. And this is very important to, the, to how we understand this text today. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom was the descendants of Esau, Jacob's older brother, who should have received the blessing by convention, but by divine election, Jacob receives the blessing. Edom will be possessed by the people of God. Even Esau will get blessed, as, we, as we'll see. And the nations who are called by my name, all the nations who are called by my name will enter into this tent, this big tent of God's blessing. In fact, that's exactly what Isaiah, we cut it short, but Isaiah 54 goes on to say in verse 3, after open up the tent, why? Because you need to spread abroad to the right and the left because you're going to possess the nations. You will, the nations will be under the canopy of the people of God. Never again will they be harassed by their enemies. Never again will their enemies be a threat. As we see in verse 15, I will plant them in in the land. Never again will they be uprooted. Never again. Joel, similar prophecy, says, never again will a foreigner walk through your midst. Meaning, no, no longer will you have the threat of occupation. And all this goes back to David. Because when God made the covenant with David, he said this, David, you're my chosen servant. I chose you from the field as a shepherd, kind of like Amos. And I chose you to be shepherd of my people. And I'm going to appoint a place for my people in the land. And they will finally, finally, finally have rest from all their enemies. No one will harass them ever again, David. But not you, David. You're going to die and go with your, be buried with your fathers. But one will come from your body, and I will build his kingdom. And so what was Israel waiting for when Jesus was born in Bethlehem 700 years later? They were waiting for a descendant of David who would build the kingdom of Israel. But unlike their expectation, which was he would kick out the Roman occupiers, Jesus is the one who gets kicked out. Jesus is the one who gets rejected, who gets pushed outside the city gate and is crucified as an outsider, as a foreigner. But what Jesus conquers three days later when he raises the dead is so much more impressive than the puny Roman Empire. Jesus conquered death. The blessings were so much bigger than what Israel imagined. Jesus like, political freedom, that's, that's it? No, no, no. I'm going to give you eternal freedom. It's 
that and so much more, right? So the last days, according to the New Testament, are here. And I want to turn to to how the New Testament uses Amos. James, the half-brother of Jesus, quotes Amos 9, 11 through 12. And it's really important to understand like how the, the early church used and understood the prophets here. And so um, looking at verse 13 and following on the screen, after they had finished speaking, that's Paul, Barnabas, and Simon Peter, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, real quick, the context of this quote was a church-wide council over the first major controversy to rock the church, and it had to do with Gentiles coming to Christ. Gentiles, like all grace, total surprise, Gentiles are seeking Israel's Messiah and coming to him in droves. And they're like, well, what do we do? Like, because we know what to do with proselytes. Like, Gentiles could always join Israel. They just had to become Jews. You had to be circumcised and ceremonially washed, and you pledged loyalty to the theonomy of Israel, to the nation of Israel. Like, you didn't just convert, you changed citizenship. You, it wasn't just religious, it was an ethnic change that you made. And now, these Gentiles are coming to Christ, and the question is, do they need to become Jews? And the conclusion of the church is, they do not. In fact, the prophets predicted it. Because David's fallen booth has been raised in the body of Christ. The last days are here. The age of resurrection has begun. And so, that big tent to the Gentiles has been flown open. And there's nothing new or shocking, as I said, about Gentiles coming to the Lord, coming to join Israel. The prophets are replete with references of the nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. What's so new here is that they would be joined to the Lord not as Jews, but as Gentiles. That they would remain Gentiles. In fact, the reason why I think James goes to this particular passage, and you may have noticed there's some differences between what James says and what Amos says, right? If we had time, we'd dig into that. The differences aren't significant, but they, they, well, they, they are important, but they're not, they don't change James' James's use because there's one line in particular James is concerned about from Amos 9, 9 11, and 12, and that is found in James uh, well, sorry, in Amos chapter 12, and all the nations who are called by my name. That seems to be the clincher for James and why he cites it. Because earlier in Acts, if you can put that back on the screen, on verse 14, he says, Brothers, Simeon told us about how God first visited the Gentiles at a, a cent Roman centurion's house of an Italian cohort, how the Spirit fell on uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on them, meaning they're clean. 
They're, if the Holy Spirit fell on them, they're clean. And they are not Jews. They're not circumcised, not, nothing. And yet God accepted them as they are. That blew Peter's mind. And so he says here, God first visited the Gentiles to take, look at this, to take from them a people for his name. That's the key concept. And the idea here is, from Amos chapter 9, verse 12, the idea of all nations called by my name, if you were a Jew and you were familiar with your Bible, that phrase would have stuck out like a sore thumb to you. Because that language of the people who belong to my name or the people to whom my name is called over, literally, it occurs in multiple places in the Old Testament. It never references anybody but Israel. Never. Except here. It's the only time where Gentiles are called people after my, called over my name. And so James here is making the point that these Gentiles, as Gentiles, can be saved without having to be join Israel ethnically. Uh, you know, Isaiah referenced this as a crazy idea too. Just by way of example, Isaiah says this crazy thing. He says, in that day, Israel will be the third among my people, together with Egypt and Assyria. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my special handiwork. Oh, yeah, and Israel, too. It was crazy, but there it is. Not just Amos, but all the prophets, as James says, agree with this. And so what's James's conclusion? What's his conclusion there in verse 19? Therefore, it's my judgment we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles anymore. In other words, leave them alone. Welcome them in. Throw open the tent. They're welcome. And the same is true for us now. Guys, these are the last days. They are the days of the resurrection, but they are also days of radical hospitality. These are the days that we are to open up the tent, as Isaiah 54 says, to enlarge it that we might possess the nations. We are to occupy the nations not by force, but by hospitality. We don't conquer by force, but by love. And I want to just give two applications here. One is how we can practice hospitality, and the second is communion. And then then I'm done. So regarding how we practice hospitality, it is so important to the mission uh, of God. It is so important to the kingdom of God, hospitality. Did you, you you ever notice how frequently Jesus is sitting at the table? with the strangest of peoples in the Gospels? You ever notice that? In fact, Jesus says it's the hallmark of his ministry. He says John the Baptist came fasting and doing bizarre prophet things out in the wilderness with his locusts and his honey. The Son of Man came what? Eating and drinking. He came partying. (laughs) And wherever Jesus sat down, there was a controversy because of who he was eating with. And whenever Jesus gave a parable of the kingdom, nine times out of ten, the kingdom parable was about a dinner table. It's not strange to us that one of the sacraments of the church, or the two sacraments Jesus gave us, is a table where we practice hospitality and enjoy Jesus' hospitality. But we're called to be a people of hospitality. How do we be on mission in these day, this day and age? Guys, it's got to include hospitality. We've got to throw open the tent. And so, two examples of things I think we can do in a socially distanced time of COVID. 
Social distance does not mean and cannot mean social disconnection. That's not an option. We have to remain socially connected, even if it's socially distanced. So here's two examples of ways we could do this. Very easy. And they're both stolen from friends of mine who are way smarter than I am and way better at this. One is, a friend of mine does, every Sunday afternoon, he invites someone in the church that he hasn't seen or talked to or maybe hasn't even met yet. He says, hey, come to our house for one hour from 3 to 4 o'clock. We're going to have a bottle of wine. We're going to have some tea and some crackers. Real simple. We're just going to sit on the front lawn. And neighbors pass by, and we introduce our church friends to our neighbors. And we just spend some time together. Outdoors, socially distanced, but connected. Another great example is a friend of mine is a church planter. He has weekly neighborhood cocktail parties. And they just meet in his cul-de-sac. And everyone's socially distanced, and it's bring your own chair, bring your own drinks. But people love it so much, he's had to get someone else to start another one at the other end of the neighborhood. Because people are desperate for, for personal connection. Guys, this is the kind of thing we need to be about. Like opening up our homes, opening up our lives and our hearts. And I know if you're like me, you feel cursed at times. You feel stingy, shattered. You feel like you got nothing else to give. Here's the truth, you do. Because you are supremely blessed. By the grace of Christ, we do have access to strength. We are able to open up our homes. We are able to open up our lives in, res in responsible, socially distanced ways. And so we can do this. Even if weekly is too much, that's fine. But we can take baby steps, right? And then finally, regarding, regarding the Lord's table, uh, as I said, Jesus gave us his hospitality as an emblem to celebrate throughout the history of the church. Until he comes again, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so we're, we want, we're excited that next week we get to do this corporately. Now, some of you in small groups have already celebrated the Lord's Supper together, which is great. It's wonderful. It's what we've been hoping for and asking you guys to do. Uh, but this will be the first time we're all together going to do that. And as part of the emblem of the fact that we are to celebrate from one loaf because we're one body, we all want to take of the same elements. So for those that are here, that will be easy. We get the same elements distributed safely to us. But for those who are going to be watching from the live stream or you just can't be here next week for whatever reason, we still want you to receive the same elements we'll all be taking together. And so you can talk to your small group leader. If your small group leader looks at you like a deer in the headlights, that means they're like me. That means there's more emails than they can read. So they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. There's no condemnation. If, that's, if you're the small group leader, you're like, I don't know about this. Um, that's why we're talking about it now, uh, the week ahead. And so... Uh, you can email Mark, Mark at Riverside Community Church, and he will make sure that you guys figure out how to get the elements so that by next Sunday we can take this all together. And I will close by saying this. The Lord's table is open to any and every sinner who receives Christ as their salvation. And there may be some of you uh, that you're not sure if you're ready to make that decision yet. But I want you to know this, even though that table is set for the family of God, the door to the house is open to you. And so if that's where you are, if you're on the, you're, you're on the fence, you're not sure if you're ready to follow Christ, I'd like you to, if you would, just listen to this prayer. Just pray with me if you're able and ask for Christ to, to help lead us into the next steps forward. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you because you invite us to. You say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And Lord, we are weary and heavy laden. We feel cursed oftentimes. Lord, you promise in the place of curse a blessing for us. 
Or maybe, maybe the barrier to that blessing is belief. That we just don't believe. We are in a culture of lies. And belief is hard. So Lord, we pray that where there is belief, help us in our unbelief that we might believe all the more. And Lord, maybe, maybe we're not ready to let go of the things we know you're going to call us to let go of. I pray you would give us strength. Feed us with your grace now, even before we can come to the table, so that we may have strength, Lord, to reach out our hand and receive from you good bread, good meat, and your cup. We might drink and be full. We praise you in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.